You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Blaise Pascal was one of those polymaths that only the Enlightenment could have produced. He was one of the 16th century's most important mathematicians, and Pascal's triangle alone might have been enough to make his name immortal. But he also invented the roulette wheel, proved the existence of natural vacuums, created the barometer and the syringe, and wrote one of the century's most important treatises on the scientific method. But in 1654, when he was 32, he had a religious experience and devoted himself to theology. Before his death at age 39, he had produced the strange fragmentary book we know as the Pensée, a genuine classic of French prose and a foundational text of what would come to be known as Christian existentialism, although of course it belongs to many other traditions as well. But the theological focus and fragmented structure of the Pensée has led some philosophers to suggest that it's not a work of philosophy at all. Our guest today on Christian Humanist Profiles is Dr. Graham Hunter, professor of philosophy at the University of Ottawa, and his latest book, Pascal the Philosopher, an introduction, argues against the philosophers who want to lock Pascal out of their clubhouse. Thanks for coming on the show to talk about it with us, Graham. It's a privilege. Uh, I'd like to start, if you don't mind, by talking about your personal history with Pascal. Uh, when, when did you first encounter the Pensee, and can you trace the path from that initial reading to your writing of this book? Uh, I uh, have known about the Pensee and consulted it. It's an odd work of uh, strange collection, really a bizarre collection of fragments, notes to himself, longer polished things, completely unpolished pieces, some very short, some attacks on people or ideas, and some uh, expositions of ideas of his own and some of other people's. So as it's a strange compendium of jottings over a long period of time, over several years of his life. And uh, I have consulted it because many people that I admire admired it, uh, but uh, only got uh, interested in it by chance because... Um, in in my university, you have to, each year, if you want to give a graduate class, you have to give two uh, courses you might give so that the committee, graduate committee, can orchestrate the best possible offering for the students each year by choosing among the possibilities that professors put forth. So we've all learned to game the system. We propose one course that we think they'd never dream of accepting, and then... <laughs> the course that we really want to give, which is what I did, and Pascal was the one I didn't think anyone would dream of accepting, but to my surprise, that's the one they wanted. So I actually had to come up with a course, and I hastily put together the ideas that had occurred to me just in my random consultations over the years with Pascal, uh, and about mid-course, I said to myself, this is extraordinarily good, and I thought the students enjoyed it, and and it had a kind of coherence that I had never suspected in putting it together. And I thought, well, I should really try to write this up, and uh, so that's where the book came from. That's, uh, that, is, that is a great story. What do you, do you remember what course you wanted to teach instead of the Pascal course? Uh, yes, I was going to teach uh, Leibniz's uh, account of nature. Oh, okay. Well, I'm glad you. Uh, I'm glad they stuck you with Pascal anyway, because I enjoyed reading. Oh my! <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
you mentioned that a lot of Pascal's expositors aren't philosophers at all, but literature professors, and I, I must admit that I'm in that boat myself. And honestly, I didn't really know that calling him a philosopher was controversial at all. Uh, what, what is the reason that, that professional philosophers tend not to think of him as a philosopher? Well, the the reason, I think, is that uh, they think he's entirely dependent on Christianity for his uh, intellectual, the intellectual basis of his thought as Christian, which I think is true. And they think that disqualifies him to be a philosopher because he's basing his thought on what he conceives to be re revelation, but which would be unprovable. So it's a kind of enlightenment uh, thought, but uh, and it's a rather shallow thought too, but it's remarkable how many distinguished philosophers uh, think that. So That, still, that seems strange to me, because you, you would have to leave out so many other people if that was your, I mean, would they consider like Thomas Aquinas a philosopher? <laughs> it's a question I often ask myself. I mean, it's obvious that he is considered a philosopher, but I, I don't know. It's it's very hard to account for the vagaries of other people's thought. I haven't right. uh, seen a discussion of that question, but uh, but I, think I could that see, is the I, I could see. That, uh, disallowing Pascal because it's so fragmentary and he's not interested yeah. in providing systematic accounts. But mm -hmm. to, to disqualify him as a philosopher just because he's he's coming from from so, so heavily from Christianity seems strange yeah. to me. Yes, well, that's the only reason given by Émile Breillet, who was a distinguished philosopher himself and historian of philosophy in his history of modern philosophy. He has a ten-page treatment of Pascal, which shows a very fine grasp of Pascal's thought, but that's the only reason. He, his first sentence is, Pascal is no philosopher, and he justifies it by the religious uh, dimension of his thought. Now, I, I might mention that uh, that uh, the uh, Polish uh, philosopher who also wrote in English, uh, Kolakowski, uh, who wrote a tremendous book uh, called God Owes Us Nothing about Pascal's philosophy, uh, he he thinks uh, that Pascal's attacks on philosophy show that he's that Pascal is no philosopher. That he doesn't, in fact, want to be associated with philosophy. That he's some kind of religious thinker instead. But uh, I've tried to show in my book that that's not. But his notwithstanding his attacks on philosophy, it's it's attacks on philosophy as it is done, as it, as the tradition handed it on to him not as uh, as the subject itself. I mean I I would imagine if you if you were gonna cut cut him out for attacking philosophy you'd have to you'd have to say Martin Heidegger is not a philosopher either or these other what's uh Habermas well, term? lean to that view. Right. Right, yeah the, the, the fair the, the heroic farewell to philosophy I think is what Habermas uh, says about it. Yeah. It seems like there's a philosophical tradition of that where you're still doing philosophy, you're just Announcing that philosophy is bankrupt up until you. Yes, yes, I think that's true. Well, let's talk about his attacks. Um, your, your first chapter deals with them, and, and um, in particular, you talk about this tactic you call the Tournament of Champions, where Pascal puts Michel de Montaigne over and against Descartes. What's to be gained from watching these two guys argue with each other in Pascal's imagination? Yeah, it's really Epictetus rather than Descartes. You have to put on the other side to get exactly Descartes. 
idea. So a great Stoic philosopher and a great skeptic. So the the Stoic philosopher, but Descartes is also a good example of of what uh, Pascal puts on the one side. It's people who think they know. Mm-hmm. So Descartes is an excellent example, but Epictetus is the example of Descartes that uh, Pascal actually chose to defend this side. So people who believe they know, on the one hand, against people who believe that we know nothing. So skeptics. And and Pascal's, I think, very plausible claim is that each of these people, in a strange way, is a success. The skeptics are successful because they're quite able to show you that you your claims to knowledge come to nothing, that you no philosophical claim to know can be established beyond doubt. On the other hand, the pe- people who believe that we do know things, which he calls dogmatists, the, the dogmatists are also successful, not because they can demonstrate things, but because there are things that we will assert whether we can demonstrate them or not, such as that we exist, or that food is a good thing, or that two and two is four, or actually quite a host of things, that justice is good, that people deserve to be justly treated. These are things that we will assert whether or not we have a proof for them, they they bubble back up to the surface no matter how many times disproven. They're, they're what philosophers call indefeasible. They can never be put down. And so the the skeptic can, you know, kick away all the all the arguments you can bring forward for such plain convictions as we all share. As often as the skeptics like, they can kick away the the arguments for them, and we'll still assert them. And uh, the way that this this view comes up in in the ordinary world is that people, when they encounter skeptics, they say, but you couldn't live that way. Nobody can live that way. Nobody can live as if he believes nothing. And, uh, and this is another way of putting the idea that the dogmatists uh, have views that can never be be defeated even if they have no arguments to prove them. So the long and short of it is that the skeptic is right that we have we can't prove by argument any of the things we believe and the dogmatist is also right that there are certain things that we believe that we're going to believe whether we have arguments for them or not. They they cannot be expunged out of the human belief system. So this is a kind of standoff and uh and philosophy can annihilate all the claims to knowledge that we have and and dogmatism can annihilate the the skeptics claim that doubt is a manner of life that we could live with perpetual doubt and since each of these is one half of philosophy, the two halves get together and destroy one another, and there's nothing left of it. So this is Pascal's critique of philosophy. So he kind of comes across these ruins that he feels he can build a new philosophical stance on. Yes, yes, that's right. And uh, But I think it's not a new one, it's an old one. And that if you allow 
these two halves of philosophy to face off, what I call the tournament of champions. The, the, the two champions face off against one another and kill one another in battle. When they fall away, then you see what is deeper than either of these traditional forms of philosophy, this, this, the dogmatic and the skeptical. You see what is deeper, what is the primordial, in fact, philosophy, which I think is the philosophy of Socrates, though Pascal doesn't try to develop it. He's not a historian of philosophy. philosophy he's a his philosopher in his own right, and he he develops it without any specific reference to Socrates, but it's the Socratic idea of inquiry. That's That's what survives the Tournament of Champions. And in particular, you connect it to the Socrates of the Mino. Of the uh, of the um, Gorgias. Gorgias. I'm sorry. I don't know why I was yeah, thinking Mino. Right. No, the Mino is an important one too, but the Gorgias is uh, the one I, I used most frequently. In the... I, mean, I mean, and it's interesting that when, when Pascal comes to the wager part of the Pensee, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, I'm sure, when he comes there, he has to use, or doesn't have to, he chooses to use a uh, dialogue to get that that uh, that across, and that that's something that doesn't happen a lot in the Pensee. I, I can't remember if it's yeah. the only place in the book he does it, but it's certainly one of the few places he does it. So mm-hmm. it's like yeah. he's slipping into that Socratic method without announcing that's what he's doing, at least. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. <clears throat> the dialogue is hidden. You have to to read it uh, the um, wager with care to see that it has this dialogical structure and then once you see it it becomes blindingly obvious how it goes <laughs> although not always obvious which side is speaking but well, you uh you you've brought up this word inquiry and and when you talk about it in in connection with Pascal it reminded me a lot of Augustine talking about faith seeking understanding um can can you yeah. talk for a bit about Augustine's influence on Pascal Yes well it's a very it's a very deep uh, influence um First of all, the whole of the 17th century is under the influence of Augustine because it's under the influence of Plato, and it's under that influence because of the rebellion in the 17th century. By the way, you inadvertently said 16th century when you introduced Pascal, oh. 17th, 17th century, 1600s, 17th century. But, uh, I'm making all sorts the, of mistakes today. <laughs> yes, well, I'm going to make lots of them too. But so the the uh, the whole of the 17th century is under the influence of Augustine because of its rebellion against scholasticism, with the inordinate uh, prominence of Aristotle. So Plato is the alternative picture, and Augustine's. Of course, Augustine's great contribution to philosophy was to Christianize Plato. And so Augustine is, a, for Christian philosophers, uh, most and most 17th century philosophers who we remember were Christian philosophers. So most of them look to Augustine as a, 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 one of the major inspirations for their own thoughts. So there's that general thing. So he would have that... They, they, uh, Pascal would have that in common with Descartes, of whom Pascal is very critical, but on those, that point they're both very influenced by Augustine. But then you have the particular influence 
of Augustine on Jansenism, which was a very strict religious movement of the 17th century, with which Pascal became uh, quite accidentally involved. Uh, his sister got involved with the Jansenist movement, and uh, as a result of that, he got involved, and his his brilliance as a stylist made him very attractive to the uh, Jansenists who wanted a kind of publicity man, and he became that for them and wrote one of his still famous and still read books, The Provincial Letters, is uh, written in defense of Jansenism. So, uh, and and the foundational document of Jansenism was a document, just a biography of, and a philosophical biography of Augustine called Augustine. <laughs> so they're uh, they are an Augustinian uh, movement in the Catholic Church, with which uh, Pascal strongly identified. And in fact, his conversion that you mentioned was a conversion to a Jansenist form of Catholicism, a very strict. Augustinian form. So uh, so Augustine is certainly a very central influence in his life. One of the uh, most interesting sections of your book involves an extended discussion of philosophical failure, which is this phenomenon in which someone makes a completely reasonable and sound argument that is nevertheless rejected by otherwise well-thinking people. Um, you, you, take what I, you make what I take to be a novel move, which is connecting philosophical failure with the psychological concept of confabulation. What, what do those two things have in common? Well, uh, confabulation is a very interesting uh, philosophical phenomenon. It was first uh, explored in connection with the bisected brain, and when the two halves, the two hemispheres of the brain become which normally are connected to one another and normally uh, transmit information between themselves. And um, the one is more intuitive in its... One hemisphere of our brain is more intuitive in its uh, thinking and the other more analytic. And the intuitive and the analytic exchange with one another. But when you have a bisected brain, that... uh, that kind of exchange is impossible, and sometimes brains are surgically dissected or er, bisected so that um, uh, because apparently it helps uh, in some cases of epilepsy, it helps to reduce the severity and frequency of the seizures if the brain is bisected. And since psychologists are interested in the effect of bisecting the two hemispheres, they have done some experiments, and it was in the in the course of doing experiments of this with people who had bisected brains that the notion of confabulation came to to be because it it becomes possible to pose questions uh, to subjects to conscious subjects to pose questions that only one side of their brain will understand and the other won't, and then when they react to the question. To uh, to question them, allowing the other side of their brain to react to what they have just said, and we find out that people. Uh, one of the astonishing things we find. Oh, let me give you an example because this is too abstract. So, uh, it's you might say to somebody, um, "Get up and go to the window," and you allow one side of the brain to see this. Uh, say you could hold up a card with this instruction on them which they see only through one eye connected to one side of the brain. So then they they 
go up and go to the window, and then you ask, showing the other eye connected to the other side of the brain, you ask, why did you go to the window? And the person says, oh, I just wanted to stretch. Or I thought, oh, I thought I heard something out there. They invent a reason for their own behavior, which we know not to be the correct reason. And uh, so this, this uh, I think, was the first use of of the term confabulation in this, in the psychological sense that we found out that people are able to explain their own behavior as casually and falsely as we know we explain other people's behavior that we see on the street. Oh, that silly fellow thinks he's very important and that's why he's yelling into his cell phone or something. And uh, that the, exp the real explanation might be quite different. And so the real explanation of our own behavior might be uh, might be quite different. And so this is the origin of these experiments on on confabulation that began to draw into question in the minds of psychologists whether we really are rational animals in the way that Aristotle defined us or not. That is, do we always have reasons for the things we do or do the, are the things we do motivated by causes that may often be unknown to us? And... Um, so that was the uh, I brought that in as one of the possible grounds for philosophical failure that there's something else it, when you listen to a philosophical argument it may be something else that causes you to disagree uh, which and this cause you may mistake for a reason and uh, and you think that you have reasonably come to the opposite conclusion but in fact you've just tuned out the argument that has been made to you and uh, and responded with what seems to you to be a reason but is in fact caused by something irrational or non-rational. So I, I hope that's not too incoherent an explanation. No, not at all. Not at all. Well, and, and you, you, talk about, you talk about Thomas Nagel saying that he doesn't want there to be a god mm -hmm. and that this is, this is somebody being honest about Confabulation is the source of philosophical failure. Yes. Yes, it might not be confabulation because it, confabulation is really just one strand of the psychological investigation of this same uh, apparent irrationality that often, often uh, masquerades as rationality in human uh, exchanges with one another. We often think we're being rational, but psychologists, lead us to suspect that sometimes we think we're being rational, but in fact there are non-rational factors governing our behavior. And uh, confabulation is just a, an example of that kind of reasoning. But I, I go on and think of, consider some others and, and, and then Pascal's much, I think, deeper and more fuller account than, than anybody else has given of this Yeah, because that's Pascal says, uh, I, I can't remember which, which poem say it is, but he, he says um, that we we decide what we're going to do and then we come up with a reason for doing it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, of course, famously, he says the heart has reasons for which the mind does not know. Yes. Yes, and he has many pensées where he deals with this. And also outside of the pensée, his... Uh, his uh, distinction between the art of persuasion and the art of reasoning or the or the geometrical geometrical reasoning and and persuasion is uh another 
whole essay in which he develops this idea that uh, that we are often persuaded of things which, where he uses persuasion in its literal sense, which means uh, appealed to by the sweetness of the by what we want to be true, appealed to by what we want to be true. Often we believe things only because we want them to be true, but we think we want them so strongly that it appears to us to be a reason. And we think we have reasoned this out and come to this conclusion by our own reflections. And you you contrast this with rational arguments that don't carry any kind of persuasive weight or not. Yes. Heavy yes. enough, I think is your term. Math, I think is the term I use, yes. Math, yeah, right. You also talk about philosophical failure in the context of a, of a theological concept, uh, the, the fall, um, which is a very important one for Pascal's philosophy. Can you could you talk about why the fall is so important to him, other than he's a 17th century Christian? <laughs> yes, well, um, of course it's a central teaching of both Judaism and Christianity that uh, in the Garden of Eden, uh, Adam and Eve sinned. They freely sinned, and as a result of that sin, not just Adam and Eve were changed, not just their nature was changed, but the nature of nature itself was changed. It, on the Catholic teaching about the fall, it, nature was not uh, utterly destroyed or or made irredeemably perverse by the fall, but it was perverted and changed for the worse. And uh, and so were so was our own nature. So we became incapable of leading good li good lives on our own by our own um, efforts. That is, of leading theologically good and perfect lives by our own efforts. And uh, and nature nature was changed for the worse. Weeds arose, mosquitoes arose, animals became predators as a result. Um, deserts arose. All the things that are inimical to human life for which the universe was created we were the, the reason for for creation. And uh, the things that are inimical to our survival and our uh, enjoyment of life, both within ourselves and within the natural world, are a result of the fall. So that's just a traditional uh, a traditional doctrine, but but uh, Pascal sees in it uh, the ultimate account of our philosophical failure, which he extends to every realm. Really, in the in the pensée, you can see that every every realm it's a there is a moral failure, scientific failure, social, political failure, personal failure, religious failure. Uh, all of these philosophical failure is just that, that part of it that concerns philosophy, but it's a widespread and very depressing uh, feature of life. Because it makes, so hard, makes it so hard to reasonably approach people. Yes. Yes, that's right. Uh, but also, it makes it hard, even for people of goodwill, it makes it impossible for us to construct a just society, for example. Um, it makes it impossible for us to know anything. I mean, this is the fall is the reason why we can't have a decent science. Uh, 
uh, you know, why science always changes. We call it paradigm shifts, but it's really, you know, we find all of a sudden we've been on the wrong track all this time, and we think, well, now we're on the right track. But uh, that only lasts for a little while, and then we find we're on the wrong track again. And this this repeating uh, discovery that we make that we've been doing everything wrong is uh, is itself evidence of the fall. And you know, think of the social order of things too. I mean, just think for an example of of the Victorians and their ideas about how everybody was going to be made to be a certain way. I think of the idea of the Boy Scouts. You know, you'd, <laughs> you'd have the Boy Scouts. Why would you do this? Well, you'd show, you'd get poor, lots of poor people. I think Lord Baden-Powell's idea was that lots of poor people would join the, they'd send their children there, and they'd turn them into proper little Victorian gentlemen, and, and uh, the whole world would be better off. But of course, now you couldn't have Boy Scouts anymore. Now we think that's all wrong. They'd have to be Boy and Girl Scouts. After all, you couldn't separate boys and girls. And gentlemen, I mean, really, that's so fraught, we think, with racist and sexist and all kinds of abominable things. You couldn't possibly uh, have that. I mean, there's there's nothing. And it'd be colonialist, too, because it was Victorian. In uh, all these ideological changes that have come between the Victorian age and our own age would make something like the Boy Scouts probably repugnant uh, to to many people, uh, whereas it was thought to be a thoroughly good thing just a hundred years ago or even less than a hundred years ago. And so our, you know, our social, we find in, in our attempts at social betterment as well, the very concept of what would make us better changes from time to time and we look back on ourselves and think morally reprehensible the very people who used to be the paragons of virtue. And and we have very little sense that we will one day appear morally reprehensible. Oh no, very little, but it's but we can rely on it. Yeah. But yes, yes. Well, it's like you're saying about the paradigm shifts in science. The fact that the paradigm shifts every however however often doesn't stop people from thinking, well, this time, this time all we're going to do is follow this straight line to the end. Yes, that's right. And uh, it's it's very amusing. If you want to amuse yourself, you Google the term just about to understand or just about to, to explain, and you find a whole list of things will pop up that science is just on the verge of explaining. And of course, what what if you do that just once, you don't realize that science is always, 2,000 years ago, science was just on the verge of explaining everything, of course, because you always think that your science is just one step away from the explanation. Because we, we can't help but think of ourselves as Hegel, right, as the, the crowning achievement of all of yes. Western, yes. Western history yes. and culture. Yes, yes. and just imagine, just imagine Fukuyama, for example, being able to declare the end of history a hundred years after Hegel had declared the end of history. I'm sure and that won't be the last time. No, I'm sure it won't. But here here again, Pascal's helpful because he has this conception of us as being midway between the infinitely large and the infinite, infinitely small, and thus our, our ability to do anything is severely limited. Yes. Yes, that's a magnificent passage of the of the two sciences, the very the science of the very large and the science of the very small, the very small being so small that we can't detect it and therefore we can't know it, and the very large being so 
so great that we can't detect it, and so we're in the middle realm. Too big to understand the little things, too small to understand the big ones, and therefore understanding nothing. Well, the most famous passage of the Ponce is this Pascal's Wager, though he himself names it, uh, and forgive me, my French pronunciation is not good, uh, Infinite is it? Yes, infinite and nothing. Yeah, infinity and nothing, that's right. Um, the argument he makes there is often explained in very simple terms, and because of that, I think a lot of people think they understand Pascal's wager without really understanding it. Um, it's actually a pretty complex set of pages there in the middle of the pensée. Um, I suspect most of our listeners are familiar with some version of it, but can you lay it out for us in more fullness than most people encounter it? Uh, well, I don't know whether I can do that uh, in a short interview or not, uh, because I devoted a very long chapter to uh, to a commentary on it, which, uh, as you say, it is it's full of uh, it's full of subtleties. Well, instead, um, then instead of instead of asking you to lay it out in its fullness, then why don't you tell us a few things people miss when they read, or probably don't even read it when they, when they when, when it is reported to them. Uh, people think that the I suppose they they think that um, the wager is um, is uh, a good bet and um, that is to wager on God is a is a good bet and that's not a bad that's not a bad approach it, that's what the wager is it is telling us that uh, that it's a, a good bet to bet on God rather than to bet uh, against God if you um, take all things into consideration. But I suppose the the devil is in the details here of what what do you have to take into consideration. And uh, um, one thing you have to take into consideration is the fact that science doesn't teach us anything. And, uh, of course, not everybody is prepared to take that on board. This is part of what what Pascal has to persuade the interlocutor of, that uh, that reason teaches us nothing about certain things anyway, and, and God being one of them. We cannot know whether God exists or doesn't exist. Uh, that's the first thing you have to agree to if you're going to follow along in the wager. And uh, then the question is, since since knowledge is impossible, ought one to govern one's life as if God existed, or should you govern it as if he doesn't exist? And Pascal has to show us that there are no other options. To try to abstain, to be an agnostic, is simply to govern your life as if God didn't exist. So agnostics all vote for atheism. So there's either theism or atheism. Those are your choices. And it's not some abstract form of theism that Pascal has in mind. It's Catholicism. It's Catholic teaching. Are you going to be a Catholic or are you going to be not? That's really the question that he is asking. And um, and what are the reasons that one might have uh, for either, since since we can't have knowledge of the question? And uh, and Pascal comes to the incredible conclusion, and it, I mean it literally as incredible, that uh, 
that we ought to vote for the thing that we like best uh, in such cases where we have no knowledge, where knowledge is impossible. And, um, and this depends on a certain idea about betting. Betting, the idea that you could apply logic and mathematics to betting was new. In fact, Pascal was the first to develop this idea of, of probability theory on the one hand, but also of its application to games of chance. And so it's in the context of that, which is requires a lot of uh, intricate analysis, but it's in the context of thinking about games of chance that Pascal can make this seemingly preposterous claim that in, the, in such cases where there's a great good to be had if God exists and no particular good to be had if God doesn't exist. So if on the case when you're faced with a bet where there's a tremendous good to be had on the one hand and no good or bad to be had on the other, it's a much wiser thing to bet for the one you most want to be true, which is the one that will benefit you. Much wiser to bet that way, or to bet your life that way, than it is to bet your life on the option that will have no payoff, whether it's true or not. So both atheists and agnostics are very foolish because they make the wrong bet. That's the substance of the of the uh, wager argument. Uh, as I said, there's much lies in the detail of it, but that's the I think the general idea. Right. I mean, I think you spend like 60 pages or, or so um, going going through it in in very close detail, which obviously we won't have time to do here. Yeah. Um, from the beginning, people have criticized the wager. I mean, since it was published, I think Voltaire um, Voltaire mocks it uh, even. Um, you, you find it more convincing than a lot of people. What what is it about the wager that you find to be such a uh, such a effective argument. Well, I think it uh, its effectiveness. I don't know to what extent I've brought it out in the book, but it's been that was the effort of the book to bring out its its effectiveness, and it it its effectiveness uh, can be seen in the context of Pascal's whole picture of philosophy, and really the what what the you mentioned earlier that the the wager, this long pensée that's called the wager, is a, a kind of dialogue, and it's a dialogue between somebody who has lost his religion and Pascal, who want, who's lost his Catholicism or drifted away from his Catholic foundation. So, and Pascal wants to call him back to these, remind him of what it is, and and uh, and. What he calls the inquirer too is inquiry, or what he calls the his interlocutor, the person he's talking to. What he calls him to is is what I call inquiry, this kind of Socratic picture where we we know we have some kind of a of religious convictions which are either historically handed down to us or that we have come to on our own, discovered on our own. Maybe they're not convictions anymore, but they're a kind of picture. We have a picture of a God who loves us, who is good and just, and who is omnipotent and omniscient and all good and so on. All these 
this understanding of the nature of God that we have, and we may think there is no such being, that this is just some kind of pleasant fairy tale, or we may think that it's the truth. But if it's only a pleasant fairy tale, then uh, no good no good could come to us from living as if it were only a pleasant fairy tale. We can't know the answer, according to Pascal. We can't know whether there is such a being and such and such a story of life as arises out of the Christian tradition. We can't know whether that whole story is true or false. But if we live as if it's false, we gain no benefit in this life or the and there may not even be an afterlife. If we, however, live as if it's true, there is a benefit, according to Pascal, not just in the afterlife, but also in the present life. And uh, and so to so since we can't know, the wise thing is to live as if it were true. And this is what inquiry is. This is what the kind of philosophy is that Pascal develops. It's it's um, uh, a kind of inquiry in the light of um, in the light of uh, philosophical failure. It's an attempt to um, just let me uh, formulate what I want to say here. It's we're looking for a grounding that we never wholly find because the grounding lies ultimately in God. And God is, as Pascal likes to say, a deus absconditus, a hidden God who hides himself always. So he demands, for some inscrutable reason, he demands of us this kind of inquiry. The only people, those who look, find. That's a very Pascalian teaching. And, and one of the most comforting of the to, of the pensée to religious believers is the pensée in which uh, Pascal says, you wouldn't be seeking me if you hadn't already found me. Right. He, to be seeking God is a sign that you're on the right track philosophically. That is, that you're an inquirer. And you inquire in hope. That's the that's the wonderful thing because it's um, it's a hopeful but never terminating search for an end of failure. Right. That's really what it is. To it, failure never ends because in this fallen world it won't end. So we'll always be philosophically falling short, morally, scientifically, socially, politically, personally, religiously. We're looking for a grounding we can't find because it's available only uh, in this hidden God. So, so inquiry is a lifetime activity, which. However, the promise of Catholicism is, sorry, let me interrupt myself and say the Roman Catholic name for this, for what he calls inquiry, is conversion. It's a lifetime uh, transformation of our fallen character into a more perfect, but never wholly perfect, uh, character. So that's that's what, um, so it's a, it, this is a deeply Christian picture uh, the transformation, the gradual transformation of failure into a more perfect form. It's a lifetime uh, activity and one that is rewarding. Um, and I wonder to some extent if the people who find the wager dissatisfying, and I, I'll confess I'm one of them sometimes, 
but it's 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 the problem is they're expecting from it certainty or they're expecting it to be the end of something when in fact as you're describing it it's the beginning like it's this is the precondition to asking the sorts of questions that you you have to ask forever if you're a uh, if you're a thinking person yes a thinking christian that's right yeah. that's what you have to do and you're going to ask uh, them in one of two ways right you're going to either ask them pointed toward i think you call it life infinity right yeah. or you're going to you're going to ask it pointed toward life uh postlapsarian life let's say yes yes that's right or biological life right that's if That'll work, yeah. we that's right we th- we think that life is a biological phenomenon uh today and and uh, that that would be what the naturalistic uh, scientific person thinks of life and pascal uh invites us to think of life as a uh as a pilgrimage a kind of intellectual pilgrimage that is what inquiry is uh to overcome failure even though in a sense it can never be wholly overcome but we but we look for uh the kinds of improvement that we can find in our lives and we find them and and for that reason even in the present life we find it a more tolerable and a better life than the opposite would be and if we we're not looking for anything good if we expect no good uh out of life and just to comment on what you said about being one of the people, of course, all of us are are like that. All of us are suspicious of this uh, uh, wager argument, and I called my chapter for that reason the reluctant inquirer, because <laughs> we all are reluctant inquirers, but Pascal gives such, uh, such deep and uh, inspiring reasons to be an inquirer that in many cases he overcomes people's reluctance. Well, I said while you were explaining it, I, I always thought of myself as someone who thought the wager was kind of bunk. But as you were explaining it, I realized just yesterday a student asked me why, why I'm still a Christian, and I said because it's what I hope is true, which yes. I think I think means I inadvertently gave for the wager. <laughs> yes, I think you've already opted for it. That's right. So uh, Pascal, I'm sure had a good laugh about that if he could hear it. <laughs> as I'm sure he can. Between the lines of this book, uh, I think, is a question that goes beyond Pascal's status. Um, but the broader question I see is the relationship between theology and philosophy. Aquinas mm-hmm. famously says that philosophy is theology's handmaiden, but theology has lost its social power to the point where someone like Richard Dawkins can call it a pseudo-discipline and, and receive not yeah. as much censure as I would expect him to. Um, but what do you think is the relationship? How do, how do these two disciplines work together or cross-purposes or whatever well i i think uh describing philosophy as the handmaiden of uh theology is a, a very good way to think of it in the proper order of things i think that's right because uh we know that skepticism teaches us that that uh, philosophy can't really demonstrate anything beyond any reasonable doubt and so we if we had no revelation we would have no, nothing on which to base any of our um, any of our beliefs we'd all be just skeptics and dr- adrift in this world so i think that's uh those of theology gives us our foundation and 
and philosophy is a very useful uh, uh, teacher of logic and uh, uh, reasoning on many on all the subjects that are naturally intelligible to us. So. And on the other side, it can kind of tear down false modes of thinking. I'm a skeptical philosophy. Yes, it's very useful in that way. Deflatingly claims that people like Dawkins, in fact. Right. right. Although I'm sure before too long, philosophy, too, will be a pseudo-discipline in his eyes. <laughs> yes, it could be. Well, I like to end these interviews by asking guests what uh, their next project is, if they know it. I know sometimes it, it takes a while to formulate, but do you have a, a sense of what you're going to be writing about next? Uh, I'm I'm not sure whether I can answer that or not. Uh, I'm I'm looking very carefully at uh, at Descartes, and uh, in particular at Descartes' critiques of education. And uh, I'm thinking of writing something on him. Of course, uh, some people say about French philosophy that it is that its two great pillars are Descartes and Pascal. So, having written about Pascal, I suppose it'd be natural to write about the other great pillar of French thinking. And uh, but what exactly I'm going to say, or whether I'm going to find a book-length uh, topic, uh, I'm not yet sure. I think I'm on something interesting, but I don't know uh, where it's going to lead yet. But uh, that's the that's my thought at the moment. Well, I wish you uh, all the best of luck with that. Hopefully it'll turn out as interesting as your book on Pascal did. Well, thank you very much. Uh, our listeners can read the show notes to this episode, and there'll be a link to the uh, University of Toronto, uh, where where the where Pascal, the philosopher, an introduction is published. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our intern is Zach Schmidt. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Thanks to our listeners for listening. Uh, Graham, thank you for talking to us today. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks for uh, the interview. Sure thing. And all the best to you.